Welcome to a Whirly Bird Productions podcast with me, Helen Kirsten. We explore film finance and distribution, featuring insights from filmmakers, entertainment lawyers and industry experts. Welcome to Claire Cahill. That's um, very kindly, very kindly agreed to join me today. Um, You are an independent producer and co-founder of Compass Mentis Productions, based in Bournemouth, I believe. Yes. Um, And you have a slate of films which represent distinct voices and you're also a lecturer. Um, at the Arts University in Bournemouth, which is fantastic. New generation of filmmakers coming along there with some really um, fantastic expertise from yourself. Um, And you've been exploring, we're going to talk a bit about this today, new and emerging technologies in film production, what that can mean to new emerging filmmakers in particular. And your background, you're from New Zealand. Yes, born in New Zealand. uh, Lived in the Pacific Islands for a period of time, in fact, it was it was in Samoa that I discovered um, the joy of storytelling. Uh, Polynesian culture operates very much on oral traditions and very long sagas that happen. But we lived up in the mountains, and we would occasionally get uh, pirate radio, pirate TV signals. And one day, my mother said, "Come and watch this film. It's all about evolution." And it was two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey. And Fantastic. What's that about evolution? That's a very big introduction to film. At You're the age go of seven. Straight... <laughs> the age wow! Of seven. Wow! What did you make of that? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. It was black and white, little twelve-inch television, so yeah. a little scratchy reception interrupted. But I, but just the magic of the story really really got me and so I thought oh I like this and I was an avid reader as well so I every time I read things I was trying to imagine how I would see them in film so as I got introduced to the magic of film through the golden age of Hollywood and and the films that we saw I was just entranced by it unfortunately though um, we left Samoa I went to Australia and in Australia the industry is very closed so it's a small industry largely television a lot a lot of the way that the UK is going, unfortunately, um, a lot of domestic uh, content is produced for television, not for cinema. And the content that is produced for cinema is for, for Hollywood, essentially. Australia got um, tied up with the, um, I want to say the Marshall Agreement, but I think that was the agreement with the UK. But Australia got tied up with a trade agreement with the Motion Pictures Association and copyright rules. And so Australia voluntarily surrendered most of its um, um, quotas for uh, local content and so now the cinemas don't have any requirement to show local content and so pretty oh. much driven by American content so Australia is in terms of its local independent industry is very small it's yeah. its industry for servicing Hollywood and um, co-productions is large mm. but the domestic is mostly television and the UK has been going the same way uh, in terms of yeah, but there's no there's no barrier to entry in the way that there is in in Australia. So in Australia, it was very difficult to get work unless you had a union ticket, and it was very hard to get a union ticket unless you'd had work. So okay. it's stuck. So I didn't have an opportunity to study at film school. Um, I ended up doing a criminology degree, but I wanted to to be a filmmaker. And around about 1997, I had a very serious medical. It, uh, incident and as often happens when a medical crisis occurs you reevaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it and I thought as much as I love trying to understand human nature through criminology I really want to be a storyteller so I abandoned my PhD and set about training myself in film but it took me a while to to break through I joined a community channel open channel in, in Melbourne and Victoria to learn the basics of filmmaking then realizing I had a very golden thing called an Irish Irish passport, I thought, well, I can move and go to this very vitally independent sector in in 
in the UK because I'd read the Guerrilla Filmmakers Handbook. And so, ah, so you thought that's oh, that's the place to I be. Thought, that's the place to be. We can <laughs> we can do it. Um, funnily enough, with the circle closing itself, um, I a few years ago was encouraged to. Uh, I was working on a film and I um, was encouraged to give some guest lectures at the Arts University in Bournemouth um, on scheduling and um, and budgeting for independent filmmakers or low budget filmmakers. And so I did that. And that's how I ended up um, uh, being offered a position as a as a, a lecturer because I had a teaching background from Melbourne. Um, and Chris Jones was an alumnus as an alumnus. So Chris Jones of the Guerrilla Filmmakers um, trained at I think it was um, okay. Arts University College in Bournemouth I think at that point or it might have been Bournemouth and Paul Arts Institute Bournemouth but um, same the circle keeps closing <laughs> and so so came to the UK in 2007 um, full of full of intention to try to do some training uh, trying to do some short courses at NFTS or the Met or one of the film schools mm -hmm. didn't really get the chance to um, exchange rate ate my money so um ended up with yeah. rain dance and shooting people. So going through that again, that very grassroots um, filmmaking training, but through that process, understanding how much of the grassroots was missing vital, vital information. And that's where yeah. after a period of time, I applied to join the production guild. Mm -hmm. And that was difficult at that point because the production guild had a, um, a qualif qualifying budget amount that one had to have worked on films equating to two million pounds um, or high or TV production yeah. equating to that. And the problem I had was that all the films I'd worked on were very low budget films or mm -hmm. micro budget, nano budget films. So I very cheekily put a re an application in and in the application, I mentioned that I had 2,100,000 pound films. Wasn't that equivalent to 2 million? And um, Steve Clark Hall took me up on the logic and said, <laughs> well, if you're going to make this case, then you have to show me that you know what you're doing. So uh, we had a meeting where we went through a budget for a film I'd produced, Art Ache, uh, which uh, was 98500 And he needed to show how I had been able to achieve that, that amount uh, legally and properly. So uh, on that basis, I was accepted into the Guild uh, as the micro-budget member for a period of time. And one of the things that I was asked to do was to talk to younger filmmakers about how to budget properly and how to um, to schedule properly for lower budget films because there's a finite pool of money and when that money is gone, it's gone. And the film, if the film's not completed, the film's dead in the water. So what do we mean? That's, that's two good sort of thoughts there that I wanted to pick your brains about. When we're talking about low budgets and we're talking about independent, we mm. bandy these terms about, but what do we mean by that? What do they represent? Well, independent... Um, a film can start as independent because someone who's not connected to a broadcaster or to a studio has begun the process of making that film happen. So taking an idea, an idea that might be pitched through an early development script from a screenwriter or a director or an actor and developing it up to a screenplay that is shootable. And then from that, devising a budget to see whether we can achieve it and then trying to raise the money. A lot of the time at that point, films fall over because there's no money to be had so they either go and pitch it to a a production company associated with a broadcaster or a production company associated with a studio at which yeah. point you're surrendering the project to that person and that's that thing is that ip is 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 the 
the movement that suddenly yeah. yes it was yours it's now going on a journey with someone else yeah although it gets a little bit muddied because some mm. of the studios began to recognize the value of the term independent and so there was some muddying so fox searchlight was apparently independent <laughs> but it's part of fox so it's not yeah. really to that extent to to the extent it's a genre is it become a genre it's sort it's of become... people sort of split it into a genre where actually it does have meaning which is it's not part of a studio. It's not part of a broadcaster or a network or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Independent the, uh, the of those are, bodies. Exactly. The producers are financing it independently. Um, yeah. It's not being financed by a studio with infrastructure. It is a, it's a complete small entity of its own that has to be able to come into being, mm. do what it needs to do, and then resolve itself. So the independent film is, is in my mind, um, indicated by there's no financial support from a from a domain body the producers yeah. are often very isolated trying to work it out as they go without necessarily that big domain knowledge that an organization can have that um, that a broadcaster can have so you, when you're working with a broadcaster which I've never yet done um, doesn't mean I haven't given up on the idea um, there are producers who know how to do things there are production coordinators who have you know, resources at their fingertips. There are production managers who've solved many of these problems time and time before. But when you're an independent producer, these are the first time that you've often come in touch with those problems and mm. you're trying to find ways to solve them without that domain knowledge of someone solved it that way in the past. So it, it can be quite, um, quite daunting for a lot of people. So when we talk about the budget levels, uh, um, a low budget film about one million, uh, I would say, is a low budget film. When I've done, and that's not film. low by most people's standards. By most people's <laughs> not low. No. <laughs> so you talk about very low budget, and we're talking probably. Uh, I mean, low budget. When you talk about the pack definitions of low budget, a low budget is three million, three to five million. A very low budget is one to three, um, but or less than one. But when we're talking about scale, we're talking pot potentially now. Micro budget films are less than five hundred thousand. Nano budgets are less than one hundred thousand broadly speaking as the costs of things escalate those those barriers become or those borders become a little bit fluid but yeah. in terms of thinking about nano budget filming and no budget filming is where no one is being paid only just the um, services can be paid for and a no budget film is still going to be 15 25 35000 pounds for a feature film yeah. um so because something has some things have to be paid for yeah. so at yeah. some point we're talking about how much can we afford to pay the labor and how much can we afford to pay people? Yeah. Okay. I think that's really important just to clarify. So people understand, you know, where, where the, the landscape is of all these things. And, and I think then just to pick up on, you know, how, why is independent film important? If we're actually thinking of it about this as a, you know, particularly important source mm. of, of something in the film industry and artistically and culturally. What is it for you and why do you think it's important? How is it important? I think independent film is vital. It's the proving ground. It's the proving ground for ideas, for, um, for stories, for people to develop their voices as producers or directors or as artists. Um, it's, if we look at the, um, the BFI statistics, Year on year on year, we see that the majority of films that are made are people who have stories to tell, and they are, they fall within the independent, low-budget um, areas. Between 70 and 85% of all filmmaking activity that the, that the BFI knows about is independent film. It's people who've got good stories to tell, and they are going to make those stories happen. So 10 to 15% is the studio films, the co-productions, the broadcaster um 
uh, sponsored films and the big Hollywood films that come in. So year on year, we see people have stories that they need to tell. And that's what the, the avenue of independent film is where those stories can find their, their life. And some of those independent films will escalate. So The King's Speech started out as an independent film, started yeah. out with Gareth um, Ellison, Alice Unwin, Unwin Alice, Alice Unwin, and Tom Hooper, starting with this idea of adapting the play. And later the studios came on board and later it became a studio film. But it began with the, the efforts of an independent producer who wanted to bring this story to life. So a lot of the independent films have passion behind them. And so it's not cynical about raising money for making money. It's, mm. it's about... Um, raising money to tell the story so it becomes yeah. a lot more creatively honest and creatively a lot of creative integrity involved anyone who thinks that they're going to make money from an independent film you might you might but it's incredibly unlikely so yeah. one of the hardest things I had to do a few years ago was talk to a group of um, young actors who'd banded together and put a lot of money into making a really excellent project which was based on Finnish storytelling uh, Finnish um uh, legends and they'd made it and they were proud of it and they were taking it to Cannes to sell it and I had to say to them I'm really I, I don't want to burst your bubble but when you sell it that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get money straight away mm -hmm. uh, it means that you might have to pay money to get it sold which is counterintuitive. Yes, explain that so what is that about are we talking about the dis distribution yeah. element here yeah. yeah so I have a, a film that um that was made uh, during the lockdown and it's not a bad film um, I came on later as a um, as a producer for in second unit production um, the, the directors funded it himself and he did a lot of the work himself during the pandemic with his own camera um, capturing the footage capturing a lot of action footage which looks really really good but then the story of the the individuals had to be shot and we we did it over a weekend um, very intensive stuff, but there's about 10 minutes missing. So once I saw the final edit, I said, we're missing um, two story strands and those story strands are critical to that story being um, being understood by an audience. And we, I, I took it out to several distributors and they said, we love it, we love it, we love it. Is it finished? And I said, no. And he said, yes, um, I'm right. It's not finished yet. And so the, one of the distributors said to us, well, we love the, love the story, but there's this storylines missing. So we would take it on. Um, and we would, we would look at, be looking at 10,000 pounds. And uh, so I said, okay, well, that's, um, that's going to be a bit tricky. What the director heard was that they would be paying us 10,000 pounds to distribute it what they meant was that if we paid them £10,000, they would finish the film, so they would do the additional footage that needs to be collected, cut mm -hmm. it, package it, send it out. So they would, and it was a very good deal, £10,000, to finish yeah. the film. Very good deal. It's just we didn't have £10,000 to do it. So yeah. the film has now ended up on Amazon Prime, um, not really doing much because it's not a complete story yet. It's, it looks nice. It looks It looks good but it hasn't got the heart of the story there. And this, again, is one of the issues when we don't have an experienced um, story producer working with us. A lot of independent films lose that, that I want to say domain knowledge because I've said it so many times already, but that experience of a story producer who can say the audience needs this. So important. I mean, it's interesting. I've listened to um, some other episodes in this series. There was a, an interview with, with Geraldine Maloney um, and she was you know saying exactly that who is your audience you know have you got a ready-made group of people that you've either nurtured through your relationship with them on social media mm. 
you've identified them are they existing you know fan base obviously that can be, be then tapped into and that people aren't always thinking about that they're sort of thinking about it more more personally um and that works so important to be done really early on isn't it just to yeah to get the foundations and and know that this film can is going to be demanded by somebody and watched it really is because we've we've been brought up on the myth of the auteur director and the auteur mm -hmm. director is a producer director but the the thing that's really important is a, a really good trusting relationship between a producer and a director and I made this mistake myself in the first films that I was working on of thinking that the director was ultimately the final arbiter but the director is the person who has something to say and as I became more involved with what I was doing I realized the role of the producer in this way is to stand in the place of the audience as we go through yeah. so that I know who wants to hear it and I know what they want to hear so the director is un unfettered from what the audience wants and can be quite honest about the story that they want to tell but I as the producer can shape that story for the audience so I stand there to say well the audience needs this the audience needs to know they're not going to read the script before they see the film so they're not going to get the subtext we need to reveal the subtext as we go so I'm there with my blinkers on there going I don't get it I don't get it which um I do get it because I'm the producer but as an audience yeah. person I'm not getting it so and that's really important when we come to the edit we need to have made sure that we've got the editing options because we can't go back and reshoot because by that time we don't have any money left. So again, it's really important to do that that pre-visualization process with who, people who are often very inexperienced directors who aren't aware, it might be their first film, and they're not aware of the things that they haven't yet learned, particularly the importance of making sure that you can, you can look at the performance you get on set, but it's going to be different when you look at it in the edit. Um, what you remember from the memory that you got on set is not necessarily what's going to be there in the rushes. Mm -hmm. So if you've locked yourself into um, into a, a particular um, uh, set of shots and you don't have that flexibility, then we're going to be trying to fix it in the edit. We're not going to be able to mm. expose and reveal the story. We're going to be constructing the story. Yeah, and I suppose that the irony is that this is a, you know, in a sense, almost like viewed as the nursery slopes, isn't it? Mm. You're in, in this sector. This is where you're going to learn <clears> everything. You're going to, but actually because you don't have that infrastructure of the studio and all of that machinery and that knowledge and that experience behind you, it is really difficult then because you're going to learn this the really hard way, aren't you? Probably yeah. by the mistakes that you've, you've and learned. And it's expensive. I mean, it's expensive mm -hmm. and, and trying to do it again and again and again is going to be really, really difficult. Um, people think that it's very easy to make a film. It's really not easy to make a film. Um, and in some ways, in some ways it's easier when you don't have very much money because you don't have very many choices. So you have to make the best choices you can. There's a point um, at which I say, we're really looking for the comfortably uncomfortable budget because it means that your choices are contained and yeah. you work with the best that you can rather than trying to look for a choice that may not be the best for the situation you're in. Yeah, so, that framing of, yeah, therefore, because of this, we will be doing this. That sort of really clear yeah. vision. Yeah, so there's no point trying to have a big stunt because we can't do it well. So instead of having a big stunt, how are we going to, to convey that part of the story in a meaningful way that doesn't look naff on screen, um, which gives the emotional um, intent that we um, that we were looking for yeah I mean that's again where the innovation comes and you know I think that's you know it seems like from from what you've been telling me previously things like virtual production might hold some of the the key to unlocking some mm. of these challenges <clears throat> tell me a bit about what you've been doing with virtual production what you're looking at there well it's part of a pathway really um 
the thing that enabled us to get into film um, in the first place was the the evolution of digital cameras and the the, the drop in price of the digital cameras and the the development of uh, Premiere Pro for editing and Final Cut for editing, and so that that although people talk about it as a form of democratization, it's a form of access rather than democratization because just because you can do it doesn't mean you're going to make a good film. But the first film that we we made. It was a riotous, surreal explosion that was just, we threw everything in the kitchen sink at this particular film. And of course, it's done what it needed to do, but it never went very, very far. But it enabled us to start thinking about what can we do when we don't have any money and we have to be creative. And so it was a very surreal film. And we worked with a very early green screen. Um, we had a portable green screen. We worked with um, with that, and we began looking at how we could integrate Photoshop into our films. So very early pipelines. Um, so probably keeping pace with what Richard Linklater was developing in terms of um, rotoscoping. Mm -hmm. So over the the last little while, we've been looking at um, the way that virtual production occurred, and particularly during the pandemic. So we were starting to look at some of the virtual reality some of the um, augmented reality technologies and game engines and looking at the possibilities for creating um, the types of effects that we couldn't afford, the types of things like using yeah. sprites as crowds, so cutouts of people effectively to fill in crowd scenes. Yeah. Um, so we began looking at game engines around about 2016, 2017, uh, and they weren't anywhere near what we needed them to be at that point. But over the last little while through my through the company, we've been, been investing in how we can look at what's been going on with virtual production in the in the um, in the bigger world. And it's a complex a complex case because the business case for virtual production is clear. It's um it's cheaper to scan people and put them into a background and to have and safer depending and safer. on the stunts and things. Yeah. And then you have your big actors, your named actors, acting in front of the screen, and you've got the technology that connects the computer computer-generated background, which is projected onto the screens with the foreground that is captured by the camera. Now, that's great, but it's also very expensive and it's more expensive and wasteful than it needs to be. So we've begun looking at how could we create scans as soon as the fidelity was available, how could we create scans of faces um, <clears throat> to put them into, into our, our films? Now, the issue here is the business issue, business case. And the business case is not healthy because the business case, case is, well, you can scan a person once and you can use them forever. And that then decimates the, the creative industries. And that's yeah. not what it's about and not what my company is about. And so what we're looking at doing is creating virtual backgrounds, but they're not, they're not good if we have to film with real people because we still have to hire studios, which are very expensive. The um the rate for virtual production at the moment is anywhere between between fifty thousand and a hundred thousand pounds a week. I can't afford that. That's I can. Yeah. That's, that's a whole film. So what we've been looking at is how do we use the technology now to scan people's faces, have them puppet the the performance, so we've got something that we can that we can show. And this is what um, Disney ILM. Um, Warner Brothers, they're all researching and developing this as well. But we're doing it from a point of view to make it more accessible for independent filmmakers yeah. to access this technology. But the ethics have to be absolutely crystal. And this yeah. is where we are. This is what has been the substance of the SAG dispute. And the SAG dispute is not yet completely resolved. It's got a hiatus, perhaps. But this issue will come up again um, mm -hmm. because there is no technical way to block someone from using my data if I have my face scanned. There's no technological way 
even if we were able to do something with a blockchain, that would still be environmentally difficult to do that. So what I need is the same promise that producers give me um, if I'm acting physically. If I'm acting yeah. physically, producers promise me that for my performance in this film, my performance is connected to this particular film. So when I sign my copyright, it's connected. So it's sort of like PRS type payments, performing rights type repayment for having been in that original source yeah. material okay okay so 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 this is something that um that we've been um lobbying the production guild to take on board to say we need to be driving a, an ethical statement to say that if we are using um ai moderated film not ai generated so we're not generating we're generating from a person so we're scanning a person's face but we're using ai to be able to get that person to then puppet their face so ai moderated content we need to promise the people who have given us permission to do that, that we will only do it for that film or for the project that they've been signed off, that there will be equitable remuneration for the work that they have done and there will be royalty payments for continued reuse. Yeah. And what do you mean by puppet as well, just to pick up on that? So if I've got a scan of my face, then I've got, um, there's a piece of software I can use, which um, is, is now being shown around the place. It's being used in gaming at the moment. Uh, so I can... I have my scan, my scan is inert, uh, but as I move, it then maps the way that I move onto the um, onto the scan of my face. So it looks naturalistic. It's not perfect yet, but it, it's getting closer all the time. Mm. But given that when we take uh, two-dimensional footage of someone, we're scanning them anyway, because you look at um, that people when they represent on film, so on film, I look like I have a really large round face, but in, in real life, I don't have as round a face as I look in camera because the camera is scanning me imperfectly. So mm -hmm. it really is the suspicion about deep fakes and the suspicion about misuse of my image that is driving this. And I completely understand it. And as an ethical producer, I make that commitment, but I need the trust between myself and the performers that I will be true to my word because there is no way that we can guarantee um that there's a technical solution that could block it from happening yeah i get you so uh, it is such a it's an evolving practice isn't it ethically legally mm. artistically and in terms of technology it's something that is you know it's already in motion it's obviously yeah. not something that's going to stop and environmentally i'm sure you know it, people will agree you know there are many benefits from not necessarily moving things around to go to yes. another location all throwing, of that throwing um throwing cars off cliffs why do we have to yeah. do that realistically? we don't really need to be throwing things off of cliffs so you know i can see and i can see from your point of view you know for the independent sector that that's you know that's really valuable um and that provided there is that agreement that is ethical legally robust mm. and fair you know that that is a great thing to do in the future um so you know moving back to sort of talking about where the funds exist currently for, for for filmmakers like yourself what is what is the landscape like what are the i mean there are some people well-known sources i'm sure but i'm just wondering what's your experience been where would you go and and what what is the situation like well one of the first books that i read um was killer life by christine bashon and um she's one of my heroes actually that's um she's one of the inspire inspirations for me getting into film production and and wanting to become a producer and so she gave many many cautionary tales about the um if you don't have a good lawyer and you don't have a good accountant you're going to get burned and that is the truth of it so in a way one of the things that um that we've had to do is work in order to fund our films ourselves um it's very difficult to raise money um 
for film production, particularly as an independent person. However, it's it's about understanding why you're doing it, what you're doing it for, and being very careful about the the budget of it. So, in terms of how we've we've financed our films, it's been about going out, working, saving money, saving money, saving money, and then very carefully using that money. Um, we've applied to to the BFI in the past. Uh, a lot of the time, we would have people sitting around, "Oh, well, there's lots of money. The BFI has lots of money." Well, they may have, but they don't. And I don't know very many people who have actually successfully achieved BFI money. Um, so the number of people who achieve it is very, very low compared to the number of people who are trying to make stories. So the yeah. thing that I, I've learned um, through experience is that the BFI has a very limited pot of money that it can um, it can distribute. And that pot, when it's it's given to a certain number of people, becomes a smaller pot of money. But what I began to suspect, uh, which I think has been validated by the way the BFI has changed its funding regime, was that the emerging filmmaker definition wasn't a person making their first film, it was a person making their first commercial film. So in order to be an emerging filmmaker, you had to have already emerged and have a track record so that you were a safe pair of hands. But unfortunately, I don't think they were ever able to say that in the, um, in the, the uh, terms of the award, outright so they would say it's a film making fund for emerging filmmakers so all of us emerging filmmakers would rush out there saying please can we have some money but the issue that i've raised with the bfi is that there is a lack of transparency in the decision making process so you just get a yes or a no and it's very hard to get feedback so that you don't that you as an independent producer can understand where you're lacking and take remedial action the people i think who have been more successful are people who have come in at the BFI at a very low level. So starting with BFI Network, doing short films or development and building up a relationship with the BFI to do that. So I've applied to the BFI a number of times and, and not yet been successful. Well, ironically, I have been successful, but not for film funding. Uh, my company um, has been given some money for a business development fund but not for a film development again you might think oh actually you know there are different sorts of, of funding yeah. available as you say for the more the business side perhaps the training mm. that you might need there are other funds yeah depending on what we're talking about might be from a union maybe from you know screen skills or whatever you know bursaries yeah. etc um but actually making the film is still the, is still the it's, challenge the making the film is the challenge and mm. there's no easy answer to that there's no easy answer at all mm. um, one of the things that I have done is I have done some crowdfunding in the past um, yeah. for long shorts I haven't done a crowdfunding for a feature um, the two features that um, that I produced uh, were both being self-funded by the exec producers uh, so in terms of the money my job there was not obtaining the money my job was making sure that the exec producers didn't go bankrupt so the, the first film was managing the money <laughs> exactly the first film the director um, was funding himself and so i had to say to him my job here as a producer if you want to fund this yourself because he'd been looking to raise money and he hadn't succeeded in raising money either in going around looking at what he needed to do and so he would said right that's it I'm just going to make this film, and he squirrelled together an amount of money. He, he had um, he had fifty thousand on the on the table, and I said, I don't think that's going to be enough, but I need to do a budget to be able to tell you. The problem was that he didn't know what a budget was, and many people don't know what a budget is. A budget is not how am I going to spend the money I have. A budget is what does the film need to get made, and then. I go back and say, all right, well, what do I have? What can I cut? Um, or what do I have to raise more money for or think 
um, think strategically about. So a lot of people think about the budget as in how will I spend the money I have? And that's where so many films fall over because they rather than the inception of the idea thinking, right, okay, this will require this amount there. Therefore I've got to frame it around what is likely to be the case in terms of number of characters, the location. I know you've mentioned about, you know, choosing that very carefully, you know, exteriors, you were saying. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, so the thing is that first, the first thing that we have to do as independent filmmakers is work out exactly. We've got to face the devil and say, how much do you need? And that's a hard question to ask. When we've got a director who is is really determined to make the film and that passion is necessary, that passion, but it's important that that passion is contained because otherwise we rush into, into production before we're ready. And that has happened on so many of the projects I've worked on because as soon as we've got the money, the green light amount, let's spend it before it gets spent on something else. Oh, we should have taken another little bit longer to see if we could um, raise a bit more. Um, yeah. So in this particular case, the I had to double the budget that the director thought that he was going to work with. And I said to him, I need to know that this money you put on the table, if I just take it and I rip it up and throw it in the air, are you going to go bankrupt? And he said, no. I said, will it hurt? And he said, well, yes, it will hurt, but at least I won't be homeless. And I said, well, in that case, we can go ahead. But if if he was mortgaging himself or if he was doing something where he was going to be financially challenged I couldn't have taken it in all conscience because he would never see that money back and even now 10 years later he hasn't seen that money back so but that was an investment in himself as long as he understood that he wasn't making money he wasn't spending money to make money but he was spending money to make uh, a calling card film then that works yeah so yeah which is a real shame it, it, it the system the system is not good. It's 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 a really um, harsh system in terms of trying to get to to get to survive. The mm. second time I was second film I produced was being funded again by the um, by the producers, and this was to be a film to showcase martial arts uh, fighting style using Shaolin fighting style. And so in that case, the exec producers were raising the money through sales of DVDs, training DVDs in martial arts and classes, teaching classes. And so my job then again, as the producer was not to go and find the money that doesn't exist. My job was to make sure that the money that we had got spent appropriately. Um, So this is where the nature of the independent producer is a little bit different to say a person putting the deals together in a much, in a a 1 million plus where you've got, Mm. you've got to think about tax credits and you've got to think about um, tax incentives and um, the ways in which you'll structure the funds and who's got the mezzanine level and who's, who's got completion funding and who's got all the the bits it's a lot it's a lot different in independent producing it's really you find the money you manage the money um uh the money can come from different places but you're really not always going to be the person sourcing that money or or um setting up those agreements yeah so we've got some fireworks currently we've had those throughout this it's it's november there's lots of fireworks um um, fireworks in Fireworks for filmmaking. That's it. We've always <laughs> exactly. got fireworks. We've got some pyrotechnics of our own. Um, so sort of, I sort of think looking back, what would you, what would you have told yourself if you could have done when you were starting out? Now, what, what are those hard-won lessons about funding and distribution that that you really feel like these are the key messages for people? To take more time with the script, to make sure the story is better. Um, the script can be a good script. Um, even even in good production, even in well-budgeted productions, a good script can still, still turn into mush on the set um, just by actors not really 
having the time to to rehearse with directors to to come into the characters pr correctly because independent films or low budget films is going to carry on the performance of the actors because we can't afford the types of uh, production design elements that yeah. bigger films can. So it's going to really, really need the actors to carry and transport the films. Hence why actors still like to be on these films because yeah. they are at the centre of it. They can yeah. perform and immerse themselves and, yeah, take on those really important roles. So more of that is what I really would have liked to have done. So, um, and, and, and yeah, it, it's that thing that just taking that extra bit of time, that bit of time to to prepare there's never enough pre-production that's done and so we end up having to rush things on set we end up having to cut things on set and that's when you when you get to the edit you've already lost your film so pre-production is really really important understanding what a budget is understanding how to schedule and not scheduling on hope but scheduling on realities so one of the the things about going into the guild was talking with um, Steve about the way that I, and, and Alison about the way that I, I scheduled. I don't schedule on pages per day. Um, a lot of the time on bigger productions, because there's a lot of infrastructure, you can get a good average of how many pages per day you can shoot. But you can't do that on a lower budget film. You need to schedule on the number of setups that you're going to have each day because one, you don't have the swing gang who can be preparing mm. the next set. You've got to be in the moment. You've arrived today, you've set up today, you're shooting today, you're wrapping up today. Um, anything you don't gone. get today, it's gone. <laughs> so, so it's really, really about understanding you've got to have the time in to let people come in and do the work that they do. And, yes, it's going to cost you a little bit more, but if your film is that fragile, cut that scene. <laughs> so if your yeah. film is that fragile, focus on what you can do well rather than trying to spread yourself too thin. Brilliant. So that that pre-production, spend time, really, really plan your budget, get understand how you're going to manage those finances and keep it on track and have a really dedicated bunch of people to help yeah. you do it, presumably. And a lot um, of the time your film is not going to make you money. Um, so you've got to be willing to just lose that lose that money you can't make mm. commitments to people that you will you will be able to return the money to them because you cannot yeah, there's been bad practice in that area, hasn't there? That nobody's, you know, had a fee, but they're promised a fantastical thing and somebody is rinsing some fund and is getting some sort of fee. And or, then you're or like, they've just made hopeful promises and they've all gone broke. Um, yeah. One of the yeah. one of the producers, directors that I worked with did exactly that mm. um, because a certain chunk of money disappeared from the film. Um one of the one of the investors pulled out just before the film was about, and we were already already the day before shooting, and so we had to make it work. And I had to meet the crew and say, "There's no money in this film, but everything's here, so we can continue making the film. At least the film can get made, unless you've got work. If you've got work, go and take work. But if you don't yeah. have work, stay with me, and let's at least make the film or make the bits of the film we can make, because at least that way, there's the producers have an even chance of finishing the film." And then there's something that gives us an IMDb credit. It gives us a, um, a the experience that we've done. Yeah. If we stop the film now, which was in which is within our rights to do, then we don't get any of that. It just becomes a black hole in yeah. the middle of six weeks we've spent in pre-production, black hole. And at least you're bringing them into that decision. You know, you're saying to people that this is the reality. It's, it's that honesty, isn't it, that you need for people to I make think, that choice. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the the, the and I think that's probably where the value of the producer is because I think for a lot of the time, if you can get past this idea that the passion of the director is the be all and end all, the passion of the director is what pulls us forward. But the yeah. director has to be 
has to be able to do that. The director has to say, yes, I want, but they have to be able to accept that at some point we are going to hit a boundary. And when we hit that boundary, that boundary is a boundary. And this, all the hoping in the world is not going to make things change. Yeah. So from the producing point of view, it's about saying, okay, you hope that you'll be able to pay back, but you cannot promise because you, mm. you don't have control over that. That you know you are not going to be given money at the end of this. You're going to be hawking it around the place, trying to sell it. And selling it might mean having to pay ten thousand pounds of your own money to get it out into the market. Get wow. into the market. How are you going to pay people if you're paying back that ten thousand pounds first? Yeah, so. absolutely. And it's, you know, sort of thinking about um the the the, the sort of current situation of of where we're at with independence i did read something recently it was talking about how those tax incentives are now they're sort of taking away the, the space that might have been there for for independence just just tell us a little bit about what's happening well, there one of the things that that we had um 2012 i think is where things began to change but the the evolution of the the seed and enterprise investment scheme which was effectively lower budget producers uh, could speak to investors who had a tax debt that was going to be paid and we could borrow their tax money as long as yeah. HMRC approved us we could borrow their tax money and we could use it to to make films mm. the the issue was that again a lot of people said well if I can if I can get an EIS which is up to five million three five three million five million I can make a three million five million pound film out of it yeah and of course HMRC says well that's not a good risk risk ratio we want you to make a slate of films so if one of those films makes it it covers the costs of the other films um but the seed investment was lower level again and that was where people were starting to churn out these very low budget films but they weren't making anything mm -hmm. and so that got um I think taken over by the BFI a little while ago and so now it's really impossible for independent producers to create an SEIS there was a lot of financial information that needed to be provided but it was aimed at unsophisticated investors and so the amount that any individual person could contribute was capped so it was really really wonderful lifeblood for independent yeah to be yeah. able to say well the tax office is the government is investing in us this way yes. now we're in the situation where the government is not investing in us through the SEIS and it's not investing in, in us through the lottery schemes mm. so the, it's the passion of the independent producers that is mm. keeping that sector vital and alive it's the passion of the people who are willing to help someone make a story that is yeah. keeping that alive and it's vital to us we've seen that with sag with the um with the strike happening mm. how much we ground to a halt because we yeah. don't have that support of our domestic industry we don't have the ability to turn that money towards the people who have got stories to tell and finance the people who've got those stories to tell. We instead said, oh, the Americans will get over it very shortly. So in the meantime, all the groups can go on, on benefits. All the camera assistants can turn to advertising. Very, very sadly, I know many people who have developed really serious mental health issues as a, and existential issues as a result of having their income suddenly just stop dead. Wow. Yeah, and it's just that dependency, isn't it? There isn't that independency anymore. It is dependency. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what, where do you see things, you know, in, in the near future? What's your thought about the state of things for, for independent producers like yourself? Where are we where are we going to, do you think, or hope or fear? I don't know. It's um, I think we need to keep doing what we're doing in the first thing. I think we need not to give up hope because there is always that chance that one of our films will make it um, and make it fairly, fairly well. Um, so keep making good stories as 
<clears throat> as producers, keep finding those young directors with the good stories to tell. Build up your own knowledge as a as a producer so that you can be that that um, that person who can help someone develop a good story and give them the experience they need to make sure that it's something the audience want. One of the things that we that we're looking at is different ways in which we can get our our content distributed. So starting to understand how can I get my content directly to my market, and this is where crowdfunding can actually have a positive um, positive role to play, because crowdfunding is not just about raising the budget for the film; it's also about starting that conversation with your audience. And so, with one of the short longer short films that um, I made that was entirely funded by crowdfunding. The relationship that we developed with the audience was so strong that um, they were willing to pay to come and see the film if it was put on in different cinemas or different venues. And I think that's one of the things that um, instead of chasing the distribute distributors, spend directly a bit chase the audience, audience engage yeah. the audience. Yeah, yeah. Is that, that relationship's much closer, isn't it? Yeah. So um, the platforms that that are available at the moment are the, the traditional crowdfunding traditional, and uh, they've only been around ten years. So <laughs> Kickstarter, Crowdfunder. Um, I think Indiegogo is not so much used anymore, but also Patreon, which is one of the. Um, it's uh, probably a bit more difficult for a for a film producer to think about because it relies on a model where you commit to an audience who will pay you a regular amount to keep keep moving towards your creative journey. So. I was I was um, aware of the uh, there was a web series that was developed Ren the girl with the mark that was funded by crowd funded crowd sourced so the crowd came together to make the film and for their second series they also were able to crowd fund it and started looking at Patreon as a way to develop a core of their audience who would contribute an amount weekly to allow the film to go through pre production so we we being a bit more creative about. I mean, for the moment, I've been going out just working, working, working and um, and putting the money aside and trying to bring costs down and yeah. be creative about that. But crowdfunding is definitely something that I'm not allergic to um, yeah. in terms of things moving forward. So if a sort of nice sort of um, wrap up statement, you know, could you find three words that sum up what it takes to maintain and forge that career in independent film? What three traits or qualities or Number one, you must love films, must love stories. So number one, passion. Yeah. Passion. Um, number two, persistence. Just keep going at it. Just keep keep plugging away at it. it and, and one day you will be the person that succeeds. It's, it's not about giving up. And number three is making time for self-care you know making time to because the, the type of person who wants to get made will often take on too many responsibilities of other people to and it's got to be a joint effort it's got to be collaborative between firstly myself and my director together we've got to collaborate together effectively and then as other people come in bringing them into that collaborative journey um yes I'm responsible but I'm not liable um it's it's the thing that thinking about how we bring the team together and we make it as yes, a team. That be, yeah, team, team playing. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time and your insights to, um, to really share with people hard won experience. You know, you get a, you can't get hindsight until, until you've done it <laughs> until later, sadly. And I think as much as everyone's experience might be, you know, it's their own journey. There's some really important points that you've made that I think will will help people on this journey. And those last three sort of themes that you picked up on, what it takes to sustain yourself and, you know, what you need, that that passion, that that kind of determination or 
doggedness in your pursuit and also that you lean on others you know that you are that's what we love we're in a team that's what yeah. we all kind of like collaboration is king um thank you very very much it's been brilliant and uh yeah i hope to see some of your work coming out soon have you got something that's sort of there's always something in the pipeline yeah i've got um i've got the first india uk co-production happening at the moment and um um we're looking to go into production next year um it's been really quite a difficult journey again uh, and this is a three million pound budget and again it's very difficult to raise the money for it in the uk um, you wouldn't think that but yes it's difficult to do that so um but we are we are moving forward and it looks like we are close to closing the gap so we should be able to um to green light it end of just before christmas i expect we should be able to green light Amazing. it that's so, so um, brilliant well done is, um, yeah you've, you've you've definitely persisted by the sounds of it in the face of obstacles well, this one started in 2018, so it's been it's been that that journey. And the second is a um a virtual production feature, which is entirely entirely made in the game the games engine, uh, game engine technology, real time technology. So again, using scans of faces that actors and voice actors will puppet um, for them. Um, that we hope to be hope to be releasing January February time. So that be and that's being made with three people. So that's not a bad bad effort. Well, that's amazing. Plus, you are a lecturer and doing so much for another generation of filmmakers. So thank you. And thank you for today. Much appreciated. Have a lovely evening. And uh, yeah, please do check in with us again. Keep us up to date. Tell us what we need to know. Um, Will do. Will do. Thank, thank you. you. All right. If you're enjoying this content and you're finding it valuable, please subscribe to our Patreon page. Without your contribution, the podcast will come to an end. You can find the link through our website, Productions forward slash podcast or our instagram page film finance podcast and follow the link in the bio thanks for listening